Our coverage now continues with the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Laura Coates and the <laughs> awesome, totally awesome <laughs> Allison Camerata. Those are movie lines. I don't know if I don't know if you know what movies those are from. Awesome, totally awesome. What's it from, John Berman? Key line from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Fred Hamilton does with the thing at the coffee, and Spicoli comes out of the bathroom. Awesome, totally awesome. Wonderful, 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 Laura, as a reference to Steve Martin's great film, uh, L.A. Story. Mm. He says, but he says he's falling in love. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And here so I just little, thought it just came to mind because you saw me in Canary Yellow. That's, that's what inspired it. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what inspired me. Anyway, it was a cinematic theme. I, I, like, I, loved it. Fun- I like I the it. trivia. I like the fun facts to start mm-hmm. the show. That's, That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Next, mm-hmm. I'm working on a pop-up video for it. Okay. Very good. Oh, and you're awesome, days. too, Jake. Thank you. Talk to you guys. Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Cozen, Washington. And I'm Allison Camerata in New York. This is CNN Tonight. And look, we're here not just to receive the pop culture puns from Jake Tapper, but we're also here with our panelists from across the political spectrum. There's actually one team here in Washington with me. And the other team is here in New York with me. Basically, we have so much news tonight, Laura, we need two studios. That's why I think happens. And that's the beauty of it, right? It doesn't fit in one. So let's start with all the developments heading up to the midterms. The big guns from Barack Obama to Donald Trump are about to hit the campaign trail. And we've also got new polling that tells us a lot about why people are choosing certain candidates and the kind of America that voters want to have. Which, of course, is every candidate's dream to have this data. We're going to bring it to everyone. We also have a midterm issue that affects every single American. And frankly, for that matter, Allison, people all around the world, the climate crisis. And, you know, Jane Fonda is going to be here to talk about her climate activism and really what she thinks will happen if Republicans retake the House and the Senate. I look forward to that conversation. Mm. Meanwhile, we also have breaking news at this hour. Elon Musk has just closed that $44 billion deal to buy Twitter, and he's already fired the top people. What that means for all of us. I guess yesterday was a preview, Allison, when he brought the sink in. Let that sink in, Mm -hmm. America. There you go. Building off that meme. Well, we got a lot going on. Let's get right to our countdown to the midterms. We're 12 days away. Okay. Here with me now, National oh, Review editor Ramesh Panuru and CNN political commentators Ashley Allison and David Swerdlick. I'm glad that you're all here. I mean, first of all, the Twitter news, we're going to get to it. Don't worry. I think the world is about to change in a very interesting mm-hmm. way, 12 days before a midterm. But there's also some data out there. And the polls are really, really striking. If you look at, I know it's a polar coaster oftentimes, mm-hmm. There's a great poll out right now, and it talks about whether Americans think that things are going in the right direction. And I put it on the screen, overall, 74% think it's going in the wrong direction, everyone, the wrong direction. And it breaks down to 53% of Democrats feel this way, 76% of independents feel this way, 93% of Republicans, 93% of white evangelicals, 80% of white voters, 58% of black voters, 66% of Hispanic voters. This is all people who think they're, it's going in the wrong direction. Look, you guys, we're 12 days out. What does this signal to you in terms of, should I say the two words together, the red wave? What do you think? 
Well, I think that there's been a consensus in our country for most of this millennium that we're going in the wrong direction. But the fact is, people don't agree on why we're going in the wrong direction. You saw 53% of Democrats think we're going in the wrong direction. Presumably, that's for very different reasons than 93% of Republicans Mm. think we're going in the wrong direction. But it is one of the reasons why midterm elections go badly for the party in power, because we've had this persistent unhappiness with the state of the country, there tends to be a kind of reaction to whoever's in power. There were a lot of reasons Democrats thought maybe that wasn't going to happen this year, maybe with the Dobbs decision overturning they Roe. They called it Roe-vember right. a possibility, right? That you'd have a break in the usual pattern. And I think reality is starting to set in that we are getting much closer to the usual pattern here. I wonder, though, do you guys think, I mean, the pattern, I always am a little bit skeptical of it and caught me, maybe it's the prosecutor, I mean, I'm skeptical of everyone. But I wonder how much of it's seed planting. If someone is saying to you, oh, no, this is the foregone conclusion, here's history, passes prologue, does it encourage voters? Does it discourage them? Does it get them out or make them say, never mind then? Is this poll reflective of that? Well, I agree that the direction of which way the country is going, some say they, you know, it's been going in the wrong direction since 1950. Well, that meant like women's rights, Mm -hmm. rights for black people, rights for basically everybody sitting at this panel Mm -hmm. have increased. And so I think it's been going in the right direction since 1950. I think for laying the groundwork, what are we defining as a red wave? Because if that means up and down the ballot, Republicans win all the governor's races, they take the House, they take the Senate. That's how I define a red wave. I don't think they're going to sweep the, the playing field. I think there will... Not be maybe we lose one chamber of Congress, but I think that Democrats will still fare well and fare well better than Democrats or whoever is in power normally does in a midterm election. And by the way, on those points of why people think things are failing, I mean, we've got a lot of flashpoint issues, hot button issues, right? These lightning rods. You're talking about anything from abortion, for example. In particular, I mentioned Roe v. Wade and Roe-vember, as it was called. And there's always this thought about whether it was a miscalculation to believe that it would have the sustaining power of outrage for Dobbs to last through here. But here was a moment when John Fetterman was speaking and talking about Dr. Oz in his statements on abortion. Listen to this. To hear Dr. Oz speak about what he really believes about abortion and the fact that it, it should be, be made by, by local political uh, officials like the Doug Mastriano, I mean, it, it was it's it's alarming. And, I, and the fact that now people realize exactly what he believes and in, in the kind of vote he would make if he was in in the Senate. Yeah, it's you can't afford to give a clown uh, a vote on Roe v. Wade. So as to your point, Ashley and Dave, I want to bring yeah. you in here. I mean, the idea of things going in the wrong direction, many would argue with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, that was a signal of a clear demarcation of wrong direction. And it's being played differently from Democrats and Republicans. It was wrong direction if you look at polls which show the majority of Americans are pro-choice. It was it was wrong for Democrats, though, to rely on that so early in 2022 as something that was going to catapult them into stanching damage in the midterm elections. Um, I don't think that Democrats are going to take that 2010 shellacking that they did, but I do think things are trending toward Republicans right now. Part of it is because Democrats have had trouble walking and chewing gum at the same time, continuing to message on Roe, 
also trying to tout the positive aspects of President Biden's record, which there are positive aspects, but also trying to address in a way that voters will respond to the negative aspects of President Biden's record. You can do all those things at the same time. Democrats haven't done that. Across. Well, speaking of messaging, though, here, listen to Senator Lindsey Graham, because he was f- commenting on the messaging and how he thinks that Senate candidate Herschel Walker is so disruptive to the idea of what these identity politics tell us about our nation. Listen to this. Why Herschel? They're beating all of our guys up. But what is it, what is it about this guy? He changes the entire narrative of the left. We're a party of racists, Sean. Me and you are racist. The Republican Party's racist. Well, what happens when the Republican Party elects and nominates Herschel Walker, an African-American black Heisman uh, Trophy winner, right? Olympian. It destroys the whole narrative. John James, Tim Scott, Herschel Walker, everybody in San Francisco is going to jump off a bridge if we elect this man. A black conservative beats a black liberal in Georgia. What do you make of that statement? I mean, forget the jumping off the bridges in in San Francisco. We'll, We'll put that to the side. But is it the idea that it's disruptive? Is that what's going on here? Is that the critique? Well, I think that a lot of Republicans believe First of all, that it's important for the party to have more diverse representatives and congressmen. So there's a special value that that people like Senator Graham attach to having successful black candidates. And they also think sometimes justifiably, sometimes I think here unjustifiably, that minority Republicans are targeted for special criticism and attack. I think Walker's record, Walker's own past, Walker's inability to persuasively defend himself and and make coherent statements uh, on a consistent basis are really what has caused him to be as uh, as controversial a candidate as he is. Let's bring in and go to Allison. I want to hear her take and her panel as well. Uh, what well, do you think? We've been listening with great interest and uh, our panelists here were really interested in the polling. So let's bring in CNN's John Berman, also Bill Crystal, editor-at-large of The Bulwark, and journalist Mara Escampo. Great to have you guys. Okay, so let's go back to that polling. This is from the Public Religion Research Institute, because I know that you guys were fascinated by some of these findings. So let's look at the 1950s, John. The 1950s, which I know you hold in very high regard. (laughs) Since the 1950s, American culture and way of life has mostly changed for the worse. That's the question. 66 percent of Republicans agree with that. 71 percent of white evangelicals agree with that. 30 percent of Democrats agree with that. Then you look at immigration. Immigrants are invading our country and replacing our cultural and ethnic background. 51 percent of white evangelicals agree. 55 percent of Republicans, 12 percent of Democrats. And then last, newcomers threaten traditional American customs and values 69% of Republicans agree, 65% of white evangelicals, only 17% of Democrats. And John, I mean, doesn't this just say that basically people, many people in this country uh, feel that the culture is shifting more quickly than they are comfortable with, and they will be voting for candidates who are promising to basically curtail immigration? You know what the 1950s were better for? Dying, okay? People died much younger. The life expectancy was 66, now it's 79. I don't know what people think they're hearkening back to when they A think of the 1950s. Time is what they're they weren't of. alive. Most of the people in this poll weren't alive then. Like only 17% of the population is 65 or older. So you have people making stuff up here about what they see from the 1950s and, and God knows what Happy TV days. show. No, 
because that was the 60s and 70s, which were way cooler. If they said the 60s or 70s, I'd be all in. But seriously, these people are making stuff up. It's nostalgia for something they know nothing about. They're creating this notion, this idealized notion of something. And you have to wonder what their motivations are. Their motivations, you know, I honestly don't know. Well, I think it's what I said, uh, Bill. I mean, I think it's what I said that forget the 50s part of it for a second. It's the shifting sands of the culture and not everybody is comfortable with it. I think they've been pretty outspoken about that. Yeah, but I think Johnson makes an important point or an, imply, an implicit distinction, which is, look, nostal- I was a conservative for many years. I still am on many issues. I mean, nostalgia can be harmless. Nostalgia can be even a pointer towards a kind of healthy, don't assume everything's better just because it's a later chronological time. Right? You want to have people in the country saying, wait a second, not everything that you say is progress is automatically progress. Maybe our forefathers got, and mothers got some things right. And, you know, we should preserve those things or improve them or whatever, and not just throw them overboard. So I was always more sympathetic to nostalgia in the past, but I've got to say in the last six or eight years, when it's been weaponized the way it has and turned into a bitter hostility to change, to immigrants, to, you know, marge- to, to minority groups, a refusal to face up to any of the problems of the past, the 50s. I mean, there was kind of a lot of unpleasant stuff happening in the 50s and 60s. And in that respect, I think I was too nice to nostalgia. Mm. And I think what we see in America today is this, this sort of downside of the politicization and, as I say, almost a weaponization of a kind of nostalgia. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, Mara. I'm just saying, doesn't that explain how some people are voting for these candidates who are promising to stop progress? I mean, at least stop progress, certainly on the immigration front. And all of this has to do with But I don't think it's as innocent as just nostalgia wanting to harken back to a time before school shootings and when your kids could ride their bikes until after dark. I think this is a little bit more sinister than that. I think this is people who want to go back to a time when they had a little more power because the system was structured differently, because there were fewer rights for blacks, because there were fewer rights for immigrants, because there were fewer rights for women. I mean, women couldn't even own credit cards until the 70s. Now, credit cards weren't created until the late 50s, but it took 16 years before a woman could open a credit card without another man signing on. So I think there were a lot of people who really want to go back to the time when they would have had more power. It reminds me of when we first started hearing the slogan, make America great again. And a lot of black people were saying, well, wait a minute, when you say again, exactly what time period are you referring to? Because it wasn't great for us back then. And there's no surprise that in this poll, the group of people that least wants to go back to the 1950s are blacks. By the way, a quarter of the homes in America didn't have flush toilets in the 1950s. (laughs) I read that in the Chicago (laughs) Tribune today. Yeah, people, this is what people want to go wow. back to. You've done a deep dive on the uh, 1950s. Because I think people again, are crazy. I think that that's a bit of a headline as opposed to what Mara is talking about, which is, I think it sounds good to go back before school shootings and when kids could ride their bikes after dark. And there is a feeling of that. Don't like, I would say, like, don't downplay that. That is a motivator for people. But I don't know that we can go back there but I think instead when of you, problem solving but I mean, now. But I think when you have. look at the groups that want the most to go back to that time, it's very instructive. Because when you see, uh, you, for example, I think the group that wanted to go back the most, the largest percentage, were whites without a college degree. And the group that wants to go back the least are blacks. So I think you can learn a lot about what people think about that time period by seeing who wants to go back and who does not. Uh, Laura, your thoughts? I have to tell you, I mean, nostalgia is only as good as those who benefited from the memory. And I think that's part of what Mara is alluding to. And while I certainly do know the theme song for the Andy Griffith show and did like watching it, it's not an era I'd want to live in. But I think the bigger issue here, Allison, is it's about the feeling. And as, as much as all politics is local, 
that's how people capitalize on it. That's how people want to sort of cultivate and plant the seeds of remember when in some ways it's not all that different than the question. And I'm paraphrasing here of, you know, are you happier now than you were five years ago or four years ago or two years ago? Making people use these comparison points makes the ones who are not in power sometimes feel like, see, I have the ticket in the vehicle for change. So it'll be fascinating to see how it all pans out. And it's not 13 days away now, Allison, it's 12. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. maybe nostalgia will be on the ballot next to all the other invisible ink. I submit that it will be. And I also think that all politics is personal. I mean, not just local, it's personal. Mm. And the feeling of what you think that candidate's going to give you, whether it's flush toilets, John, or other kinds of progress. I'm all for that. I know you are. Sign me up. I know you are. I'll take two. I'll take take a half bath, too, if you need it. Too much information, John. (laughs) Thank you. Who's getting this off, too? Laura, help. I'm going to avoid this going down the drain. See what I did there? See what that was? And we're going to talk about tribal politics and next. And what's really at the root of all of this? That's the real question. And anything else you want to say to Allison and me, tweet us at Allison Camrod and the Laura Coates. Please, no questions about toilets. I don't want to talk about that. But up next, Elon Musk completes his deal, Allison, to buy Twitter. And the firing has already begun tonight. We've got some late breaking news tonight, Allison. Elon Musk's $44 billion Twitter takeover is official. He's already started firing people, including Parag Argawal and two other executives, that according to two sources. It's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, he has said that he plans to rethink Twitter's policies and approach to free speech. And he's also said he disagrees with permanent bans for those who repeatedly violate its rules, which, of course, has a lot of people watching to see what will happen with former President Trump. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's fair to ask, what does this mean for all of our lives? Because it, it yeah. will have an impact. Well, especially, I mean, remember, it's not just the idea in a vacuum. We're talking about how close to midterm election in preparation for the 2024 presidential run. We know how impactful Twitter was when it came to candidates, to the idea of the certain entitlements that were bestowed upon those who were campaigning in the moment and the idea of what was a public announcement or to be revered in some way or regarded. I'm really curious to see also if President Trump comes back. He said he wouldn't. Right. I wonder if he will. And also, what is Elon Musk's definition of free speech? So let's Mm. get right to it. Let's bring in our panel. John Berman is back with us. Also, CNN international correspondent Mark Stewart and CNN contributor Carrie Champion. Um, Carrie, do you have thoughts on what this means for all of our lives? Well, you guys both touched on something that I thought of. Will Donald Trump come back? I'm curious about that. And also, what's his interpretation? What is Elon Musk's interpretation of free speech? So as a, a black woman on Twitter, if I tweet anything in support of another black woman. I immediately find myself dealing with uh, a sea of bots uh, telling me that I am wrong for what I am doing, that I am racist, that it is wrong. So for instance, Brittany Griner, I tweet, I'm in support of Brittany Griner. I want her gone, I want her home. I think it's unfair what is happening to her. And the reaction that I get is so vile and so disgusting, it makes me not even know if this is a place where I want to share my free speech. Now, when he says he believes in free speech, does he take care of that? Does he get rid of the N-word that I'm often called 
relentlessly? Does he say these are things that you can say to people and other things you can't say to people? How do you decide to be a referee of hate? And oftentimes, that is what I get on social oh, media. That's awful. I'm it so sorry to hear that. It's awful. awful. What a cesspool. It is disgusting, and no one is there to regulate it. And in fact, it is normal. So I know, this is what I do, Allison, and this is an honest, this is an honest thing. I'm going to tweet anything, something innocuous in support of someone else, perhaps a marginalized group of people. I know without fail, there will be so much hate in response to what I tweet. So is that the free speech he speaks of? I don't understand why we live in a world where supporting someone requires you to be a racist, to live on other sides. He said in his statement today he believes in humanity. Well, what about the humanity of someone like me? Yeah, he has a lot of questions to answer about things like that. Mark, your thoughts? What does it mean for all of us? Well, I think it means that this is a new era of Twitter. If you are the owner of a grocery store or a car dealership, an airline, an insurance agency, the list goes on and on. If you need to make a change in the way you do business, you bring in new people. So back to the point that Kerry made about what is this definition of free speech? Well, I don't want to speak for Elon Musk, but perhaps the previous C-suite had a much different view Mm -hmm. of what constitutes free speech than Elon Musk. If he wants to move forward with all of this, well, he is going to have to find people who agree with him and who see eye to eye. I also think it's important to point out that that even though some very big names have departed from Twitter, it doesn't mean everyone who works there is mm. going to be fired. You still need people to do the day-in, day-out tasks of administration of this of this very valuable platform. Perhaps there are people that Elon Musk will meet during his visits uh, who feel the same way as him. Maybe these people will be elevated. But clearly, a new era, a whole new view of principle. That's why we are seeing a huge change. Here's a statement from Musk uh, about all of this. Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape, although it is, <laughs> uh, where anything can be said with no consequences. In addition to adhering to the laws of the land, our platform must be warm and welcoming to all, mm. where you can choose your desired experience according to your preferences, just as you can choose, for example, to see movies or play video games ranging from all ages to mature. What could go wrong, John? Well, you know, the statement goes on and he's basically begging advertisers to stick around. Don't quit me. That's the bulk of the statement because he's nervous Mm -hmm. that people are going to rebel against him. My question is, look, the guy has now taken over a company he didn't want and he fired the people who were there? Immediately. Immediately? He's on a firing spree tonight. Is he going to take it seriously? I mean, is this something that Elon Musk is going to care about? In a week or two weeks. Right, or three because weeks. you have to put the infrastructure in. If you're really going to make this a welcoming place sure. and fight the stuff that you're talking about, you have to uh, pay attention to it. Yeah, and look, I mean, there are people who are over dependent on Twitter. I think Twitter dictates too much in our, you know, in, in parts of society, but there are people who depend on it for information, and it would be nice to see a responsible steward of said place. All right, thank you all very much. Great insights. Great to see you guys. All right, now, will the climate crisis be on the ballot this midterm election? Actress and activist Jane Fonda has a lot to say about that, and we're going to talk to her next. We're talking a lot on this show about the issues that are going to decide the upcoming election. The economy, abortion, immigration, the future of our democracy. But how about the future of our planet? You know, according to a recent report over just the last year alone, climate change caused by humans 
has affected 96% of the world's population. And here in the U.S., we've seen the results unfold in, in all around us in the most devastating ways. You've seen them. Hurricanes, fires, floods, drought, extreme heat. My next guest is fighting to make sure that this November, climate is on the ballot. Joining me now is actress, activist, and author, the great Jane Fonda. It's so nice to see you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to see you. You know, I think it's so remarkable, not only your career, but how you have used your platform, particularly as it relates to something that impacts all of us. I mean, in the long run, in the short term, you are up against and you have been fighting against perceptions of climate change being something that's a conspiracy theory, being dismissed as that, not being taken seriously. Can you just talk to me a little bit about the work that is you're doing and why you have felt so compelled to ensure that you fight this good fight? Well, I mean, we are, we are facing a civilizational crisis. This has never happened before since human beings have existed. We, we face a real climate catastrophe. And, you know, I like a lot of people. I have young grandchildren. I, I want to have a future for them. I don't, I see how angry young people are because we really have put their future in jeopardy. You know, what's stunning is even with the current standards, meeting that goal you just stated seems to be something that at the present time is not as attainable as is hypothesized on these things. And you know, there's a cost to it, not just the cost in terms of what it does to our children, our future, our grandchildren, the future human civilization, but it actually has a cost associated. I mean, the extreme weather that has resulted, it's cost billions of dollars to the overall economy, the overall world. And Jane, this is not a problem for just a select few. I mean, 96% of the world is impacted by the global climate change. It really is an all in it together, but do you feel as though it's being taken seriously globally in that realm? Uh, yes, I think other countries uh, are much more serious about it because they're more impacted, perhaps. Mm. Uh, but, you know, over 70 percent of, of Americans uh, are concerned about the climate crisis. Um, the problem is that too many of our elected officials, Democrats and Republicans, take money from the fossil fuel industry. Mm. Consequently, the real important legislation that we need to stem the burning of fossil fuels is not happening. And that's why recently I started the Jane Fonda Climate Pack to get climate champions elected to office so we can begin to you know, pass legislation that will do something important. And, and we only have four election cycles left, and that includes this November. Mm. And we've got 12 days left until the midterm elections coming up. And, you know, democracy is on the ballot. The issues surrounding abortion around the ballot. You've got the actual um, different legislative initiatives and ballots across the country. And you've got people who are denying the elections on the ballot, just to name a few of the things people are grappling with. Do you think okay. that people are looking at climate as a very important factor in their decision leading up to the midterm elections? I mean, obviously, it's something that ought to be contemplated. Have the politicians, have the incumbents, have the candidates on both sides done a good job of bridging that gap for the public and the electorate? Well, I think the media uh, is partly responsible for, for, the, for the problem. Mm. I've been traveling the country 
uh, working with climate champions who are running for office. And they are very clear. They all have a climate plan. They know what we're facing. And the people that I met in these states as I was campaigning, they are aware and they are going to be voting for these people because they're concerned. I mean, you take, for example, you know, the, the, the Hurricane Ian that just devastated parts of Florida. Now, just imagine that two days later, another one hits and then another one hits in Texas and then another one hits. In, you know, it's pretty soon we're not going to have time to rebuild and collect ourselves and 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 pay for what needs to be paid for. Um, and, you know, it's just it's going to get worse and, and we just have to act fast. You know, just using your celebrity, using your platform to, to raise more awareness and about the urgency. We know the clear and present dangers that are presented and posed. And it's not lost on me, your critique of the media coverage and what can feel myopic on certain topics. I know people complain a great deal about and I, I can appreciate that philosophy. But in terms of using your celebrity, I wonder the way that you have gone about it from Fire Jewel Fridays and beyond, the way you've gone about to be consistent, what do you make of what we're seeing in some you know, art museums, in some areas of the world where people are throwing food onto revered works of art as a way to draw attention? Do you think that this tactic is something that is getting the attention and, put, and moving the needle in the way that, say, your work has? It certainly gets attention, but I, I think that it makes people angry. Hmm. You know, I mean, I have been arrested a lot of times for engaging in civil disobedience, which is do, doing things that are against the law if the law is wrong. Um, but I have avoided, for example, blocking freeways and things that will, you know, the average person wants to get home for dinner or wants to get to where their kids are in school or whatever. So I, I'm not particularly in, I understand where the anger comes from. I'm not in favor of doing things that are going to make the average working person angry because it, it affects them and their and their lives. And, you know, some argue that maybe it affects the way they view the overall movement that could be counterproductive. Possibly. You never know. But all I know is that the amount of work that's being done and the work through your pack as well. Thank you for joining us this evening and making sure that the lines are drawn and the bridges are felt for the electorate about what is on the ballot, even if some things feel like they're an invisible ink. Thank you, Jane. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I appreciate being here. Thanks. Thank you. Really well, interesting. Yeah. Wasn't it? I mean, just thinking about, especially her response about the tactics that are being used now, because that's getting a lot of attention in terms of defacing artwork and what that means and that overall conversation. Well, what's more important to you, this art or the long term, you know, sustainability of our planet? It was yeah. really fascinating. I think so, too. But I also thought that I appreciated what she said, that she tries not to do things that get in the way of working people because you mm. you need their support for your cause. You know, you don't want to work at cross purposes with people. And look, Jane Fonda has been politically active and socially conscious forever. I mean, you know, she is somebody who has been doing this for decades. So, you know, she walks the walk here. She certainly does. And she looks I'm good doing it. She really does. I, mean, so I was like, can we can we lower my lights? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can agree on that. Um, okay, Laura, here's a question. Where's yeah. LeBron James? And that's not mm. rhetorical. Really, where mm. is he? Hmm. I think he should be in L.A. playing for the Lakers. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to do the where. But I get your point. Because I get your point. here's the point. <laughs> he played a huge role in the 2020 election, but he's mm-hmm. oddly missing 
from this midterm season. Why? That's next. So we just heard from Jane Fonda about how she's fighting climate crisis. Of course, she's always been politically active, and she's not alone. Many celebrities, musicians, star athletes are championing social causes and political endorsements. But do celebrities actually move the needle? We're back with John Berman, Bill Crystal, and Kerry Champion. Okay, so here's who's out on the stump this week. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda is stumping with Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock. Actor Paul Rudd and Dave Matthews are out for John Fetterman. Um, UFC champion wrestler Henry Sayuda is turning out for Kerry Lake in Arizona. There's a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Bill, can you think of a time that a celebrity has actually moved the needle for a candidate? Donald Trump got himself elected. Okay, he's and, a, no, he and, and, I, and, I, and I think we all, I certainly personally, I looked at his issues, I didn't like him, of course, you know, and all this. I wildly underestimated the pure celebrity side of Trump, the, you know, apprentice and 14 seasons. Look who's running for Senate this year, incidentally, and not accidentally as Trump-supported candidates. Dr. Oz, why is he a candidate for Senate in Pennsylvania? Because he's a TV celebrity. Herschel Walker, why is he a candidate in Georgia? Not maybe because he's the best qualified person to be a senator. And we actually have a graphic of some other celebrities because running as a celebrity certainly works. So here, as you'll see, Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, Al Franken, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, we have Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer was actually a mayor before he was a That's celebrity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that wrong. What I love about yeah. this, though, is Sonny Bono was actually alive during color film. Like, oh. for some reason, <laughs> we used a black and white photo from I don't know what era of, I guess, the Sonny and Cher it's show. The but, the but, but, but I, exactly, we're back in the 50s. I take your point, but that's different than a celebrity endorsement. So no, do you, no, you don't think it moves the needle? Not much. Jerry? I do. I, I, I think it not only moves the needle, it gets people involved. You mentioned LeBron, where is he? And he's been so quiet um, for a, a very long period of time, more than a vote, which was his inspired organization to make sure that he made sure that people were getting out to vote. In 2020, it was huge. It was huge. I remember them working. I actually partnered with them to do a couple of different projects to make sure people were actually getting to the polls. And it mattered because what happens is, is that whether they want to be or not, they're heroes, they're idols, and people do pay attention to what they're doing. And it becomes not necessarily trendy because I don't want to say they were doing it for trend, but it brings issues, awareness to a group of people that otherwise would not care. Um, I know there are people who work in uh, a lot of different uh, atmospheres that say voting doesn't matter. But if you have someone who has been able to, and this is why so many people argue about LeBron's effect, there is such a thing as the LeBron effect. He has it on and off the court. So where is he? This time around. He purposely, I believe, is not speaking because no matter what he does, no matter what he says, he's always criticized. And I think this year he wanted to really focus on, as we approach this 20th year, on playing ball, uh, his family. Uh, if it takes away from that, he can't focus on that. I do believe we'll see him when it matters. I do believe if if someone he believes in says, can you explain? explicitly get out and stomp for me. He will. But he's being very particular. He's not lending out that endorsement just because. Because it cost him too much. Too much peace, I believe, for his family, for his friends, for the team. And people have to have that balance. John, can you think of a time? Yeah, I mean, I think the last biggest time was when Oprah came out for Obama early. And it was when she did it. Now, look, Barack Obama probably would have won without Oprah. But when she came out for Obama, it conferred on him, conveyed on him this huge, huge sense of being the it candidate, which he carried with him to the point, actually, where it got to be almost too much for the campaign. The McCain campaign ran a whole series 
of ads calling Obama the biggest celebrity in the world. I don't know if you remember that, and it sounded just like that. So, yeah, I think, I think Oprah mattered for Obama. And if, if McCain had a, a hard time sort of fighting back against that, yeah. he brought people on the trail with him. And I remember I did a piece once, I was a Good Morning America, about how he had Wilfred Brimley out on the campaign trail with him to sort of counter. That's wow. not a joke. It actually John, happened. Did, didn't Oprah come out for Obama when she was in the primary yes, against Hillary? No, which, is, which strengthens your point. That was why it was so important. Yeah. Here's this upstart, Hillary Clinton, first woman. President. I and Oprah says, that. I prefer Obama. That's a, that was a big moment. I kind of I just it. feel like Obama had a star factor anyway. Like, but there was something about him when he, for me, perspective wise, not even working in politics, but there was something about him that was an X factor. There, You watch certain people and you pay attention and you believe them, and there is an authenticity. And yes, Oprah obviously boosted that. And they did find that after Oprah came out for him, she did, they, Northwestern University did a study that. They believe directly linked her to voter turnout and to more donations. Well, more she donations. went to Iowa. I mean, she went to yeah, she Iowa. went to the place. You know, okay. and, and, yeah. I mean, she went and worked for yeah. it. And, and I think we we forget yeah. because you know he was in power for eight years. I mean, he actually only won by a very little bit in the primaries. I mean, mm-hmm. just only barely mm-hmm. edged out Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. So. Did Oprah make that difference? Who knows? But couldn't hurt. Yeah. Wilford Brimley, stop it. I, I, I mean, those are two. <laughs> I've actually uh, felt guilty to this day that I did this piece sort of joking about Wilford Brimley because I think he's a he's wonderful, a lovely he's man. a lovely, he's a man. lovely man. Rest human. In peace. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay. Uh, Laura, your thoughts? On <laughs> Wilford Brimley? I don't have yes. it at the moment. <laughs> I don't. But I will tell you, I mean, it's funny to think about the definition of celebrities versus where people are now, like mm. TikTok influencers. I mean, that's, that's who's invited to the White House now. That's what they're trying to covet. The idea of who is going to have a similar influence to what traditionally, even in the years gone, gone by, were the big name celebrities. Now it's people that have memes. Now it's people who yeah. are running the game in terms of TikTok and social media. And so, as you know, the Biden administration tapped into that this very week trying to have their influence. And so it's just fascinating to think about how quickly and turned on a dime influence and influencers are no longer who we think of as celebrities, so to speak. Such a great point, particularly with younger people. Mm -hmm. There's also micro influencers that different groups are using for like your own neighborhood, your own community, Mm -hmm. people that you trust. So it's you're right. The game has changed. Microinfluencers, microaggressions. I mean, the world's <laughs> microwaves. Yeah. It's a microwave. Yeah. Very small people. Like I want to yeah. be a microinfluencer where I only influence me. tiny, tiny people. I think yeah. perhaps you are. We know, yeah. you never know. Yes, good you news. Never know. You are. Okay. Yeah. Or sorry tiny about that. Well, no, I want to hear more about the. I want. I want just not the toilet conversation. I'm good with that. Everything else, I'm with you. But you know, speaking of not maybe a microaggression here, but a maximum aggression, and we're talking about anti-Semitism and bigotry. We all know that he made comments and anti-Semitic comments that shocked the world. But did they shock the people closest to mm. Kanye West? And what should it mean for the accountability there, perhaps? in the conversations we're having. Because it turns out, it turns out, Allison, he's got a disturbing history of apparently admiring Hitler. We'll dig into it next. We have more revelations tonight about Ye, formerly known as Kanye West. We're learning that he's long been fascinated by Adolf Hitler. A business executive who worked for Ye said that at the time, Kanye created a hostile work environment in part because of his, quote, obsession with Hitler. Now, that obsession runs so deep that apparently he had originally wanted to title his 
2018 album, Hitler. And that was later released with the title, Yay. But frankly, the new revelations coming amid a slew of deeply anti-Semitic remarks from Yay on multiple podcasts and TV shows. And so you got to think, Allison, I mean, how many people have known and the word enabler comes to mind in a context like this. And I wonder about the accountability factor of, of who knew what, when and who profited in the meantime. Well, it sounds like some people were so disgusted and felt that it was so oppressive. It wasn't just a fascination with Hitler. Some people have described it as an admiration for the mm. Nazis. And so some people left. I mean, it sounds like they had to actually leave their uh, positions as executives because it was so pronounced and that wow. he has uh, expressed admiration for their use of propaganda and how they were able to become the Nazis and how they were able to become so powerful. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just stunning to me, frankly. And I'm a student of history. I know you are as well. And just thinking about that. But what perhaps is even more disturbing is the collateral damage that this is happening. I mean, you've got, he's, you know, has a school called Donda Academy. It's named for his late mother. And in one instance, you had the high school basketball team, I believe. I think it was in Louisville who weren't allowed to participate in a tournament. They were removed from it, I think in part because of the association with the anti-Semitic comments. So, I mean, the collateral damage of this, in addition to the horrible anti-Semitism, I mean, this is, this is perpetuating. Yeah, and I'm not sure that that's fair. I mean, mm. the kids didn't say the anti-Semitic stuff. Mm. Kanye did. And so the fact that they can't participate in a tournament, as you say, the ripple effect for the people who yeah. are hurt from um, these horrible anti-Semitic comments. It really is. And we'll continue to see what happens. I suspect it's not going to end here, but the fairness aspect needs to be discussed. Tell us what you think out there about Kanye West. Tweet us at Allison Camerata and at the Laura Coates. And stay with us because guess what? The dueling panels are coming back next. With the midterms looming, pundits think there could be a red wave coming and it could be big. So let's talk about that red wave with our panelists. And again, I've got a question about what could possibly happening next. Tonight, our dueling panels are back and joining me now <laughs> here back with me, Ramesh Ponaru, uh, Panuru, excuse me, Ashley Allison and David Swerd. Look, look, the clock's going to start in a second. We're going to duel it out. Number one, real quick, do you think the red wave is coming? I mean, like winter is coming. It's a red wave coming. What do you think? Yes, I do think there is. What do you think? No. What do you think? Not a tsunami, but it's trending toward Republicans. Well, we literally had yes, no, maybe so. <laughs> well, listen, if that were to happen, if it does happen, or if it doesn't, or maybe so, what about the impact of Twitter now? I mean, it was such a big part in terms of the ability of the former president to speak. If he's allowed back on the platform, what impact will it have? Well, I don't think it's going to have any impact on this coming election, but I think it could have a lot to do with Trump's own future. And I think it could work in a different way than people think, because Trump could end up reminding people what they disliked about yeah, him yeah. and why his popularity was so low as president. Do you want him back on Twitter? Absolutely not. It's bad for our democracy. I think if he's on before the midterms, it's good for Dems. Really? I think he, if he gets on after the midterms, I don't think he becomes the Republican nominee in 2024. What do you think? He won't be able to resist the tens of millions of followers he'll be able to access again. But like y'all are saying, it's going to eventually remind people of all the chaos and all the, uh, you know, just sort of mishigas that he created in politically. And it's not it's not going to help. But you him. think he should be back on Twitter. You think. 
I think that free speech is whatever the owner of Twitter wants it to be. Elon Musk spent $44 billion. He can let the president back on if he wants. That's why you buy Twitter. I think I would just like us to get to a point where we understand the difference between the First Amendment and what a private company can do. If we can get to an understanding of that, sure, let him back I, on. I hope we can also understand the difference between Twitter in real life. We can, we should, <laughs> Twitter's, Twitter matters, but we always have to be mindful that it is not representative of the country. Most people aren't on it, and the people who are most on it are wildly unlike normal people. And they're, and they're and like and they're, me. Well, and they're anonymous, right? They're also being able yeah. to hide behind. They don't get to have the same focus and attention and accountability. Look, Twitter is not real life, but Twitter also was the... A match that started the flame that led to January 6th, and that's a dangerous place I don't ever want our country to go back to. It's a, I understand free speech versus the platform, but it's dangerous and he no, should never be let on. Well, the idea, of course, your point is the First Amendment relates to what the government can and cannot do. It's a private company, so it's a little bit of a misnomer to talk about First Amendment. But colloquially speaking, we're talking about free speech. But the question, why do you think that Democrats would actually be benefited by his presence? And what would the Republicans, in my question, think about his return? When you see Donald Trump and then you are reminded of the candidates that are asking him to support you, you then say, wait a minute, if I'm an independent, undecided voter, I, I remember now that's what, I don't want that. I don't want that in my Senate. I don't want that in my um, governor's mansion. And so I think that fares well for Democrats. Republicans, I think you have infighting immediately once he's on Twitter and he starts calling people names and poking um, at individuals if they don't, he doesn't feel like they're cheering him on enough. And that's also good for Democrats. And if you're a Republican, you have to be able to address these points. It'll, it'll be the reminder of the, the microphone chasing you down the hall. Hey, it was a tweet. What do you think about this? That was a cause of concern for many Republicans. That's right. President, former President Trump has had an influence even while he's been off Twitter. But there hasn't been that same focus on uh, getting individual Republican politicians on the record about every single thing that Trump has said. And Twitter, for good or ill, does have that effect. If you're a Republican who's thinking about running for president in 2024, Governor Yunkin, Governor DeSantis, Governor Haley, you've got to have a strategy now yeah. for how you're going to address President Trump in any format, but especially what he tweets about you, right? Lil yeah. Glenn Youngkin is right there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and just for everyone's sake, he's yeah. not back on. This is just perspective, but midterm election is 12 days away. Oh! Well done! Woo. Yes! <laughs> Right on time. <laughs> All right. Uh, let, our panel is ready for this duel. Please set the clock. <laughs> okay, there we go. Uh, we're back here with Tara Palmieri, senior political correspondent for POC, also Bill Crystal, editor-at-large of The Bulwark, and journalist Mara S. Campo. Great to have all of you guys. Okay, let's squash their panel. And to do that, we have to make some bold predictions, panel. Okay, is a red wave coming? No, I don't think so. I think it's going to be a nail biter. I think all of these races are going to be really close. That's why you're seeing so much polling within the margin of error, I think, on both sides. What I think is happening is that you have um, Democrats, you have women, they're coming out. Some of them are still charged up about Roe, but you have a lot of independent voters who are thinking about pocketbook issues and who are probably going to be most impacted by what's happening within the last two weeks before the election, which is right now. And a lot of people are not feeling very good about the economy crime. And those are the things that Republicans are really seizing right, so on. So then why is it in a red wave? I don't think it's a wave unless it's a washout. I think that some of these states you're going to see Democrats perform, outperform like you're seeing in Ohio right now. Like the fact that that Fetterman is still 
not polling that like he's polling. I think you had a poll that said he was six points ahead of Oz as of this week. CNN had a poll. I think that the Republicans should be way further ahead of them in these polls. And yet you're seeing it be so close. OK, but if not a red wave, what's it going to look like? Meaning that the Republicans take the House and the Democrats take the Senate? Or what, what are you predicting? Um, I think definitely that the Republicans will take the House. But is it going to be 15 seats or is it going to be 30 seats? I think it'll be more like 15 seats. I think the Senate is going to be possibly a recount in Georgia because are either Raphael Warnick or Herschel Walker going to get more than 50 percent of the vote? Probably not. And that's what's required to win. You might see a recount. I think you're going to see a lot of elections not decided on election night. So I think the, the Senate is still split. So and get comfortable, everybody. It's going to take a while to get results. <laughs> no, Red Wave? No, no red wave. I just think people are wildly overestimating it now. And I, I think Democrats hold the Senate. I, I would think they'll gain seats, one or two seats in the Senate, probably lose the House, but they'll surprise in some House districts, as the New York Times poll out tonight, showing Democrats outperforming where Biden was in t- three out of the four districts they polled. They polled each individual district. Where? I've seen personally a spread around the country, one in Kansas, one in Nevada, one in New Mexico, one in Pennsylvania, actually. Now, the, you know, these polls, you've got to take I mean, polls are complicated and difficult, and we don't know who's going to turn out. If young people turn out, Democrats do well. If young people don't turn out, Republicans do well. But no wave in the sense of a massive uh, uh, repudiation, I don't think, of the... I mean, there'll be the normal reaction against the party in power, but but not even that much of it. Hmm. Okay, Mara? Well, I think it all depends on your expectation and your definition of a red wave. And so what it's going to come down to, what I think a big factor right now that none of us can can factor in is early voting. We've already seen 12 million people cast their votes, so they're not being influenced by any of what's happening in these last And generally, weeks. that's Democrats. And exactly. And so I think it's very hard to make these predictions. And we have learned, if the last few elections have taught us anything, it's hard to really trust these polls and to rely on them. I mean, there was a time where we all treated polls like gospel. And I think we learned our lesson about that. So I think it's very hard to make these predictions when we have these two factors at play now and the the increasing sense from a lot of people that the polls are unreliable and also the impact of early voting. So for the next two weeks, people are going to be continue voting. And, and as, as Tara pointed out, we may not know on election night or for a few days after what the impact is going to be. But I do think that there's the possibility of seeing some surprises. You know, outside of Congress, I think we could see a lot of surprises in the gubernatorial races. In here in New York, we might see the first Republican being elected a governor in 20 years, and not just any Republican, but a really far-right Trump loyalist. So there there could be a few surprises. But are you also thinking the conventional wisdom the House goes Republican, the Senate stays Democratic. I think that because, as you pointed out, you said it's conventional wisdom, right? That's what we keep hearing and keep hearing and keep hearing. But what did we keep hearing before 2016? That Hillary I, Clinton I was going to be seconds yeah, totally, totally agree with that. Okay, there you go. Perfect timing, guys. Hell, that was well, crushing. That I mean, I feel bad for those guys. I know, <laughs> what I are know. they going to do now? Laura, go I'm home. sorry They're that our panel depressed. was so fantastic. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, they say that you're only as depressed as the color you're wearing, and you see I'm bright yellow, so I'm pretty happy. Here comes the Sunshine, everyone. You all, you all did all right. You all, I mean, it's, it is a navy, but it's got a white piping. In other words, a silver lining. Better luck next time, guys. Oh. <laughs> you guys did well also. Of course you did. Of course. Um, okay. Everyone's good. We want to know what you all think. Will there be a red wave? If so, what then? Tweet us at the Laura Coates and Allison Camerata. CNN Sound Off. A secret hearing held today in the Mar-a-Lago probe with the former President Trump's lawyers and the Justice Department. 
Though behind closed doors, CNN has learned that this hearing was related at least in part to the DOJ's ongoing demands to make sure that all the documents marked classified had been returned to the federal government. Back with me, Ramesh Panuru and Ashley Allison, and joining us, former U.S. Attorney Harry Lippman, who's also the host of the great podcast, Talking Feds. Harry, you know, um, what do you make of this? I mean, the idea that it's a closed, sealed proceeding, but also normally they're in New York or in Florida. Why are they here? What does that tell you? Right. So because it's a sealed proceeding, uh, it tells me that it's got to do with the grand jury. There is a grand jury here, but pretty big news because it's the Florida team that's always been down in Florida that was going in front of the chief judge today. What does that tell me? They are positioning themselves a little more to bring an eventual prosecution against Trump if they bring one for Mar-a-Lago in D.C., which is which is advantageous to DOJ for many reasons. Why? Because the jury pool. That start. That's the, that's a big big uh, start. Is the jury pool and especially problems down in Florida. Will they run into Judge Cannon uh, down in Florida? They have, you know, certain expertise in D.C. and they can be leading with the notion of the national security, uh, you know, losses and deprivation. But basically jury pool is the big well, one. Well, I mean, when you look at this, though, too, we still have not heard about the resolution with the special, you know, master over, appointed to overlook at all, oversee all these documents. I mean, does this tell you that there's an eye towards working it out when there's behind closed doors or an eye towards, look, the judge says, I need a scheduling order. Let's get it done now. And there's such interest in this case. The only way to keep it under the radar is sealed. I don't think it's that. I think it really is because grand jury proceedings are supposed to be secret. My best guess, first of all, the Deary point, you're, you're really right. And in sort of three or four different ways, the executive privilege kind of bogus claim that, that Trump has raised is sort of be- bearing down on him. Mm. But here, I actually think, I don't think it's a search warrant because if they'd have served, they'd have just taken the documents. I don't think it's just nice talk. I think it's a subpoena, maybe even the original March 11 subpoena. So I think DOJ served a subpoena and Trump has some beef that he's trying to raise with Judge Howe. This is sort of, you know, this is tea leave reading, but that's the, you know, the tea leaves in D.C. And that's what they're fighting about. And if he if he loses that you know means that the subpoena command, the original subpoena said, give us everything from everywhere. Oh. And remember, DOJ suspects, but doesn't seem to have enough to rise to probable cause that he still has some. They could be saying he didn't comply yeah. fully with that subpoena and let's talk about it. Uh, but under closed, uh, in secrecy, just because it's a grand jury issued subpoena, technically. Well, I'll tell you, when you hear subpoenas, you can't help but think about the January 6th subpoena as well. That was, you know, issued to the former president of the United States. It was on the backdrop of the January 6th committee and the notion that democracy being in peril was a clear and present danger. You wonder how this plays politically, because you do have the overwhelming discussion and talking point from at least the Trump team of this is yet another attack, political witch hunt, etc. How does this play, do you think? Because this is in part based, obviously, on Mar-a-Lago, but would voters conflate this with, say, the January 6th or so many other things? What do you think? Well, I think a lot depends on how it shakes out in court. Yeah. Um, I think that there is, a, you know, there's a fair amount of likelihood that a lot of people will jumble a lot of these things together. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes there, it can be a little hard to keep track of what's going on in Florida, what's going on in Georgia, in what's New York. going on. In, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. 
and and uh, Washington D.C. as well. I don't think you know, getting to what we were talking about earlier. I don't think it has a big effect on this midterm elections, but certainly if we have more documents produced um, because of a subpoena, and that this affects you know how we look at this case, what kind of defense Trump can really provide for himself, um, then I think it can have effects down the line. That's the part, you know, Ashley, the idea of the, the overwhelming question for me and overarching is always, why, why do you still have them? Why do you fight so hard to keep them? And it puts Republicans, frankly, who are in some respects trying to focus on this election and 2024 and maybe to extend the 10-foot pole, maybe to extend the embrace, to have to keep addressing that question that's out there. It's a difficult one to resolve if you're the Republicans. Trump is like the ghost of legal problems past, present, and future. And I, 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 mean, I like don't mean to make light of it, but it's just Groundhog's Day over and over mm-hmm. with him and his legal issues. Which, by the way, those are both great Bill Murray movies, Scrooge mm-hmm. yeah. and Groundhog's Day. You are a woman after my own I saw what you did there. I, I was, it was beautiful. Go ahead, keep going. Um, but I, the other thing I would just say is I, I don't think it actually plays a deciding factor in the midterm elections. I appreciate DOJ's measured approach and making sure that they cross every T and dot every I. But look, I don't trust Donald Trump. We've already seen that he has confidential documents in his possession. I'm ready for them to go hard and fast Mm -hmm. here because, again, it's not about the politics of it. There are issues of national security that won't just affect Democrats. They'll also affect Republicans. And I think I'm really looking for DOJ to strike a, a harder tone on this case right now. You've been a U.S. attorney. You know that, frankly, there is the prudence versus the patience of the American public and the court of public opinion. And many people are still trying to recover from the Mueller years of expectations that this is going to happen right now and what's going to happen and the target of one. How do you see it in terms of what, what Ashley has expressed, that impatience? Well, first, Ashley's point is excellent because, remember, we had been told that DOJ suspects not just that he hasn't given it all up, but that he has important national security Mm. documents. Imagine after, what are we up to, number five or six of excuses if the last thing that's coughed up is of significant national security implication. For one, they have to get it. For two, he looks terrible. I think um, with every move, you know, it's funny, like Twitter or whatever. Maybe I shouldn't talk about Twitter tonight, but but it seems... (laughs) There are a lot, it seems evenly divided in this country between uh, people who are saying, you know, come on, what's it going to happen, et cetera. My sense is in these last two, three weeks, there's a lot of action on a lot of fronts, putting a lot of heat on Donald Trump. And DOJ generally Mm -hmm. does things without announcing it unless Trump forces them to and leads with his chin. But it feels to me like they are really moving aggressively on, on many fronts, uh, and including in particular Mar-a-Lago on this very grand jury when they put Cash Patel in a couple weeks ago, we learned. That you he took do. He fifth a number of times, that, right? Yes, he did. He was somebody who was supposed to, um, he was a designee to actually have the documents post-presidency in some, some respects. He could have been, but he's also the guy who said, oh, he magically declassified it. But it, mm-hmm. what it said to me as a prosecutor, you may, you may have had the same instinct. They're thinking about Trump. They want him in to tell his story mm. now. And so I don't know. I think there's there's pretty rapid movement by DOJ standards, yeah. which can be glacial, uh, just in this last month. I mean, 
bureaucrats not known for their expedience. Mm-hmm. But you know what? A lot is taking place. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Allison, when you think about this, I mean, there is a lot to keep straight. There's a lot to try to understand and to sort of have this flow chart of all of the relevant matters. And I wonder to what extent for an eye towards not 12 days from now, but 2024, the exhaustion politically, even with his own party. Oh, well, I mean, also in terms of the political implications, isn't Mm. Donald Trump impervious to this? I mean, haven't we seen that his ardent supporters think that these are sort of he's being persecuted with all of these different investigations? So I'm not sure that there are political implications, but there are legal implications, as Harry and everybody else on your panel just pointed out. Um, And when I hear top secret documents in a secret hearing, my ears Mm. perk up. So uh, we will look forward to hearing what all of that was about at some point. It's almost like you're a journalist. So curious. (laughs) Like you're like, wait a second, what can I hear about? Let's go there. Let's Mm -hmm. see that secret. Tell me more about that. Well, it's a fair point. And we have more to come. Can you know what they say, Allison? This is not directed to you or anyone. It's It's a James Carville statement. It's the economy, stupid, right? Well, let's put aside that whole stupid part for a second. The question is, will pocketbook issues decide the elections in just how many days? 12. I'm keeping tabs. 12, 12 days. 12 days. Brilliant. It's the economy, stupid. And Who even though the stupid? Democrats, not you, not you, never you. And don't call me Shirley. I love that. And though the Democrats and the President Biden have some pretty good news to share. Well, well, like recent growth in GDP, for example, and falling gas prices. Yes. Pretty good news. Yes. But there's also bad news because they've not been able to overcome, of course, high inflation mm-hmm. or looming recession fears and, of course, skyrocketing mortgage rates today. Over 7% for the first time since 2002. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. Just thinking about that number, it went up, I think, every week since August. And you've got the idea of how much it takes to even have a mortgage if you have 20% down, if you get an excellent credit rating. That already takes out a lot of people from even the running, and you combine that, it's pretty unbelievable. It's sad. Uh, it's hard. I mean, it's hard for a lot of people, obviously. Yeah. So they're up against all those head- headwinds. What happened to that guy? The rent's too damn high, but the mortgage is too damn high. We'll talk about that. We're back now with Ramesh Panuru and Ashley Allison. And also we're joining me now, CNN senior political writer and analyst. That was the laugh you heard. It was mm. wonderful. It's Harry Enton. Welcome back. How are you? Doing okay. I feel like I've joined a big party here, although I missed the dueling banjos earlier mm. on. So, you know, but we'll get into you, it. Do you bring your string instrument now? I you do right now. I actually played the saxophone. I'm more of a woodwinds type of guy than I am. Wow, a Kenny G among us. Who knew? I love, I love Kenny it. G. I do. Well, who can? Who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? Okay, we're done. That's back to Allison. Now I'm just kidding. No, but seriously. What is the biggest thing facing people? I mean, is the economy stupid? Is that right? Yeah, it is right. I mean, sometimes it's not right, but in this particular election, it's right. It's right nationally. It's right in the key Senate swing states. You know, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania. What's the top issue according to voters? It's the economy or inflation. So. Unlike perhaps any other midterm, you know, presidential years are often about the economy. Midterms can really vary. But this year, it's absolutely about the economy inflation. No doubt about it. And so if you're the Republicans or Democrats, are you doing enough to message that? Is, are you capitalizing on this? If it's the number one issue, a lot's been made about the Rovember comments, et cetera. If that's it, are Democrats doing enough to sustain the majority? I think you have to be sensitive to voters' uh, 
real life, everyday challenges of putting food on the table and making rent. But I think you draw the contrast. It's that Democrats are doing things to try and improve the quality of your life. They're trying to lower prescription drugs. They're trying to give you relief. Whereas Republicans want to cut taxes for corporations that are doing price gouging right now. And if you can really walk that line and say, we are doing as much as we can and we will continue to fight for you, I think it lands with people. I, I know it's an important issue, but I still don't think it's the only issue voters are going to vote on this. But I mean, is it so fluid? I mean, the econ- first of all, economy, inflation, huge umbrella topic. Mm-hmm. People think about what's tangible. I mean, I know how much it costs me to put gas in my tank. And this is a sustained problem for people. Gas prices, where are things shaping up now? Yeah, I mean, if you look at gas prices, right, it really depends on what state you're kind of looking at and when you're kind of measuring from, which makes it kind of interesting. Uh, You know, in Georgia, for example, I I believe gas prices are actually down a little Mm. bit from where they were a year ago. But in some places, what you see, especially out west, is that gas prices are up upwards of 20 percent of where they were a year ago. And perhaps it's not so surprising that perhaps the best Republican pickup opportunity is, in fact, in the state of Nevada, where gas prices are well up over 20 percent. So it really just kind of depends. And I think that's kind of what we all go through. You know, if we have a car, we're always looking for that gas station, you know, down the road that maybe is a few cents, a a little bit less. Or or go over the uh, George Washington Bridge, as my mother might do, and fill up in New Jersey, where uh, oftentimes you find cheaper gas prices than in New York. And they but do it for also, you in New Jersey, too, right? right? They do it for you. Whether or not you want it, so we'll go for you to do it yourself. It's, it's, but it's not just gas. It's groceries yeah. mm-hmm. as well. And uh, while I don't think the Democrats have been particularly good at messaging on this, I, I'm also not sure there is a message that works mm. here. I think when people's paychecks are not keeping up with their bills, they are going to be unhappy. They are going to reach that conclusion on their own, and they're going to be unhappy with the party in power. When you can also say the Democrats underestimated the problem, contributed to the problem, and then decided to repackage everything they were already for as a solution to the problem, I think that that creates a real dilemma for the party in power. That's an important point because you can say, and we are not in a recession, but if people feel like there are problems, if they feel like the rental prices, given the mortgage and the cost of food, I mean, these are what people are looking at and feeling And if politics is about that, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what you do because the people can feel it, right? You know, we were talking about mortgages, but a lot of people pay rent. I know I pay rent and I know my rent is, they want to ask 25% raise from last year. If you look at some of the major metropolitan areas where these key uh, Senate races are occurring, you know, if you in fact go back out West, you know, you are seeing these huge rises. We're seeing these rises in rent all over the place. In some cases, we're seeing these rises upwards of 20, 25% in these key battleground states. But again, it hits different places differently. And I think that is what's so interesting about this midterm election is I wouldn't be surprised if the wave hits differently in the southeast versus the northeast versus the southwest. And we could have one of these instances where, yes, we are living in a nationalized era, but maybe things will break just a little bit differently in certain parts of the country. That's a point you raised earlier, too, about the difference. Yeah. And I think even within state, you may say, I want the leader of my state to be from this party, but I want the person who is going to make a critical choice on Roe v. Wade to be of this party. And so I think it will be this midterm where you see states splitting on party lines. I also think that we've been talking about how we people need to campaign One thing that doesn't change is candidates need to be in front of voters and letting them know that you can trust me to protect you and try and improve the quality of your life. That is better than any political ad uh, can ever be. You know, get a point there, Allison. I mean, I I like candidates who know 
the price of a gallon of milk. Seems like you're in touch if you do. What about crudite? <laughs> well, you know, I, I like a little bit of a veggie tray Me too. myself. Me too. Both. I, I don't care what you call it. Ranch and blue cheese. Yeah, I don't care what you call it as long as it's delicious. Um, but I mean, I do agree with Ramesh, who is saying that what can Democrats really do or say about this? There's only so much Ooh. really they can control. And so what can they say? And by the way, if, if, Republic, if there's a red wave and Republicans are swept in, are they going to be able to solve all of the economic, the global economic problems overnight? You know, that's what yeah. voters are betting on. Well, that's why, you know, no matter, no matter what happens in the election, no one can be too smug. They got to do it all over again in two years. All right. Answer that question. Exactly. Meanwhile, um, a seven decade streak is about to be broken in the World Series. We're going to explain what it is next. So the World Series gets underway tomorrow night between the Phillies and the Astros. But when the players take the field, there will be not any U.S.-born black players among them. Here is how the Astros manager, Dusty Baker, feels about it. Well, I don't think that that's uh, something that baseball, you know, should really be proud of, you know, because it's a uh, it looks bad. It lets people know that. You know, uh, it didn't take uh, a year or even a decade to get to this point. Uh, but there is help on the way. Um, uh, you can tell by the number of uh, African-American number one draft choices. Um, the uh, academies are, are producing uh, players. So uh, hopefully in the near future we won't have to talk about this anymore, even be in this situation. So he was responding there to this new analysis from the Associated Press that finds, as we said, there's not a single American-born black player expected to be on the field for either team. And it's the first time that's happened since 1950, seven decades ago. We're back with Tara Palmieri, Carrie Champion, and Bill Crystal. Um, Carrie, is this an anomaly this year or is uh, Major League Baseball doing something wrong? I don't think it's an anomaly. I think now that we have a World Series that will be on such a huge stage, people can see a big problem that baseball has had for many, many years that has been talked about for many, many years. Baseball, in large part, is considered uh, a suburban white sport for many different reasons. Uh, You hear Dusty mention the academy. We all know that every major league baseball team has an academy in the Dominican Republic. And that is where they're getting most of their players. Um, Long ago, when I shared this story with Bill, uh, I used to host a show, and I remember Gary Sheffield, love him or not, former baseball player, World Series champion from the Florida Marlins Marlins at the time, uh, said, baseball, you will see, will no longer have any American-born black players. That's just a fact. He said, because of the way in which the baseball teams are going to grab these players from the Dominican Republic, and they can train them for a fraction of the cost, And a lot of it has to do with how you recruit and what you're looking for. Now, I know in some areas, especially in impoverished areas, you don't have baseball fields. So you're not trying to recruit players from there. And then also, and just on a just on a really basic level, I I take a Russell Wilson, if you will, or a Kyler Murray. 
both quarterbacks in the National Football League who had opportunities to play in the major in the majors, and they decided not to. It was this this promise that baseball does. It's very difficult. I go to college, go to the minors, and then maybe you'll make it to the majors. And some people can't really wait that long, especially if you come from a culture and a community that wants that that payday, if you will, that wants to get that immediate reward. These players can't wait for that promise, and it's also not conducive to their lifestyle. Um, you want to go and you want to play with people who look like you, who make you feel familiar, who make you feel comfortable. It's just that simple. And the demographics are interesting. So the MLB players demographics, 62% white, 28.5% Hispanic, Mm -hmm. black, 7.2%, Asian, 1.9%. And um, Bill, we were talking in the break about how this is the 75th anniversary Mm -hmm. of Jackie Robinson. And it's just, um, you know, it's really notable that after 50 years, there aren't going to be any U.S. black players in the World Series. Yeah, we were talking about Jackie Robinson. I grew up here in New York, and he was such a figure in the 60s. You know, and if you're interested in politics and baseball, which were the only two things I was interested in uh, when I was in middle school and high school, he was a, he was a great, he was a big liberal Republican. He, I think he was a Rockefeller delegate at the 1964 convention and got booed when he tried to rebuke the Goldwater delegates for their extremism. So I admired him as a, as a political figure and, of course, for baseball. But, you know, Dusty Baker is a manager, so that's good. And for him, Frank Robinson was the first black yeah. manager, and that's yeah. late, right? That's yeah. like 1970-something, 72 or something yeah. like that. So, and Baker's a wonderful character, so that maybe that makes up for the tiny bit, you know? Yeah, I mean, as Carrie was saying, there will be diverse players. It's not going to be, you know, the field's not awash in white right. faces, but it's different that right. there aren't U.S.-born black players. I am not a big sports aficionado, but I do know that young people tend to look up to, you know, up to these players, these role models. They have their cards. They learn about their hometowns, where they're from. They want to know about them. And when they don't see people who are like them, I can see why this wouldn't encourage other young black men to want to play baseball because they don't recognize these people as having the same background as them. So it's something that they need to work on to recruit to make sure that, you know, it's not just about the ethnicity because some of these um, players are Afro-Hispanic coming from Dominican Republic. It's about sharing the same culture that they have and the same background and being American. So it's going to be hard for them to keep recruiting unless they start bringing these people in. Um, and he was just saying, stand by, like there, there's more in the pipeline. Is that how to interpret what he was saying? Yeah, yeah, Dusty was saying that he thinks that it will change. He thinks that there will be more of a concerted effort. I know that the commissioner has talked about it. This has been a long thought out discussion about what is happening. But the promise of stand by, there should be more. I don't see that changing anytime soon. In fact, I see it getting worse. That's what I would say. I don't know uh, of an opportunity in which Major League Baseball really in my mind, what I've seen with players going out to look for players that are black, black players that live in these communities that don't feel like they are seen. And as you mentioned, it's just that simple. I can't look up to you. So what? I can't see it. If I only see it in football, if I only see it in basketball, if I see it, there are sports in which they feel recruited, they feel seen, they feel nurtured, they feel taken care of. Bill, you said something really important during the break when we were talking. You were like, it's a white suburban sport for, for, for in large part because you re- that's how it's successful. That's how these, these players are nurtured. And unfortunately, in these areas, you just don't get an opportunity to see it. And these, these, these they have basketball courts, right? They can play football. Well, for yeah. sure. I mean, and so in some way, are you saying, well, I don't know if you're saying this, but it is self-selecting. Absolutely. Because they're, cho- you know, these kids are saying basically what you're saying. It's easier for me if I go play football. And the basketball. reward is sooner. Baseball is a, t- it's a delayed promise. It's a tough, it's not a guarantee. The money isn't there. We want to keep you in if you really do love it. You know, 
if anyone is familiar with certain quarterbacks, most of them have are, are dual sport athletes, right? I think about Colin Kaepernick. He talked about it in his, his series. He said, I just didn't feel welcome. I had an opportunity to play baseball. My parents nurtured it and I did it for so long. But I decided that in high school, I'm going to actually stick with football because it doesn't feel welcoming. It doesn't feel familiar to me. And that has a lot to do with it. And I say on the other side of it, and we sound like some goofy liberal, which I'm increasingly becoming, I guess, you know, <laughs> under the influence of the, uh, un, uh, the other, the influence of Trump the other, uh, pushing me in that direction. But as a kid in the 60s, so I, love, I watched baseball, you know, the, well, I watched Willie Mays and I watched yeah. Mickey Mantle. I watched uh, Bob Gibson and I watched Sandy Koufax. And there was something healthy about sure. admiring you know, professional athletes, I'm sure I admired them too much and didn't think about all the other sides of their character. But, but no, of, of, of both, of all races and of all backgrounds and ethnicities and, you know, rural kids from Oklahoma, Mickey Mantle, I think he was, and, and you know, blacks from inner cities and, and, and now so many Hispanic Latino players. So, it, yeah, I mean, there's some, it's not at the biggest, you know, it's not, you can't manufacture it exactly, but it's nice if you have that sense of... Well, can you manufacture it? What should the MLB do? I think you can manufacture it. I think in the same way that they build these academies uh, in the Dominican Republic, I think you can also do something here stateside. And and Dusty, that's what Dusty alluded to. He was like, in the are you academies. actually on first name terms with Dusty? Or are you just no? Like, I'm so <laughs> impressed by this. It's like, wow, you and Dusty are, are you having a drink right after the show? With Dusty, Dusty and I, I go mean, way back, Bill. Yeah. Don't be jealous. I, 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 I feel I like you might jealous. be jealous. I, I think jealous. you might. It's Mr. Baker to me. But that's hey, okay. Dusty. You go ahead. You see Dusty? Um, no, Dusty Baker. No, Dusty, <laughs> Dusty Baker made a really good point. He was like. He believes that they're doing academies here and they're trying to actually go out and recruit players. But this is a business. And I have to say, if you can get 10 really great players from the DR versus the same exact price to get one good player here in the States, you're going to go to the DR. Like, it just it's just that simple. And there is also something, and this is just what I hear from players. I cannot speak, um, but from black players, they're saying that there is a sense of community uh, for the players that are white and for the players that are from the Dominican Republic that just is that just is not there for the black players that are born here yeah. and and that makes it difficult i don't know about you don't you like to wor- pl- work with people you like i, do. I mean it doesn't it feel I do, of course, it, of course. It, it, there's a, and there's a reason we feel tribal yeah and, and i while just meeting you decide that i like you and i want to work with you all the time you know <laughs> what i mean you, you can change your mind you can change your, first impressions can be very misleading friends here. Oh, uh, what a beautiful yes. sight. I gotta tell you, a beautiful <laughs> sight. But you know what? Speaking of accessibility, do you realize that it's like $3,200 for an average home game ticket in the World Series? Crazy. I mean, talk about accessibility. Enough said. You oh, want to yeah. see these games? My yeah. God. 1500 to 3200 and that's the cheaper seats? Come on. How, do better, wow. baseball. Do better. Wow. Look, everyone, do better by talking to us on social media as well. It's time for you all to sound off. Read your, read your tweets. Coming up next. All right, it's social media time. Allison, what do you got for us from the world of Twitter? Okay, let's see. This is about the uh, Elon Musk acquisition of Twitter. Elon Musk is just opening the door for another platform. I don't know what that means, but okay. Mm. Another one says, actually, the only thing celebrity political endorsements do for me is either to solidify my impression of the person, good or bad. That's interesting. Okay, Rick. Hmm. Uh, This is celebrity endorsement in exchange for food. (laughs) 
Okay. Uh, nope, but it does sway some people if they gave me donuts. Mm, that's somebody mm. I like. I, I get that. I understand that. That's, mm. That makes sense to me in this moment. Well, listen, everyone, you know where to find us always at Allison Camerata and at the Lara Codes. You can always join the conversation night after night. Use that hashtag CNN sound off and always be a part of it. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage is going to continue. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.